I, uh, I love sports. <laughs> I love... Okay, Elsa, starting now. Okay. <laughs> starting now with the heart thing. So I, I love sports. As a kid, I loved to play sports. I loved to watch sports. Um, but as I... I've been preparing to uh, live in this text this week and to preach this text. I've been discovering why I think it is that I like sports so much. And the reason I like sports so much is because of people like Roberto Carcelin. Anyone know Roberto Carcelin? Roberto Carcelin is from Peru. He married an American woman who's a Microsoft executive. And so he moved to the Seattle area from Peru. Five years ago, in his 30s, People that are 30 and older know how tough this would be. In his 30s, he learned how to cross-country ski for the first time. And four and a half years ago, Roberto Carcelin legitimately qualified for the Olympic Games in the 15K cross-country skiing event. That's very hard to do. And he was racing under the Peruvian flag. But the race did not go as Roberto Carcelin imagined. In a training run before the Olympics, he fell and broke one of his ribs. To make matters worse, as the event uh, was going to take place in a few days, he got a bronchial infection. And so the team doctor from Peru said, we don't think you should compete. Roberto said, I'm doing it anyway. I've come all this way. I'm one of three people in my whole country represented here at the Winter Olympic Games. And to say that Roberto uh, Carcelin did not get a medal is an understatement. In an event where the top finishers are sometimes within fractions of a second from each other, Roberto Carcelin finished 40 minutes after the gold medalist. He was by far the last one to finish uh, the, the finish line. But something unique happened in those last two meters of this 15,000 uh, meter race. Or not last two meters, last two kilometers, sorry. Um, Normally, uh, by that stage in the race, the crowds have gone. And normally in cross-country skiing, you don't have the most rowdy, clever crowds anyway, okay? But for the last several thousand meters, there were just hordes of people cheering on Roberto Carson. When you see the footage, you've got to YouTube this guy. He's literally almost falling over. He's limping as he's skating and skiing. People are cheering, crying at his name. One woman, there's like one Peruvian fan there. She's got the flag and she says, Go, Roberto! And as he crosses the finish line 40 minutes after the gold medalist, there is the gold medalist ready to embrace Roberto Carson. Why do I love sports? Because I love heart. And Roberto Carcelin has heart. In an age when we rarely are tested physically unless we choose to be, I mean, you know, there was an age not too long ago where if you were a male of any age, you were going to be in a fight or a battle at some point. Your village was going to get in a kerfuffle with somebody. People didn't live very long. But, but nowadays, I mean, you can drive everywhere if you want to. Uh, you, can, you can kind of be a couch potato unless you make yourself... And sport is one of those ways where we can be stretched and we can test ourselves, where we can grow the size of our heart literally and figuratively. We applaud at the end of the day watching someone with heart more than we would someone with incredible talent who performs half-heartedly. 
In fact, a couple of week, uh, a couple of weekends ago, our very own Benjamin Wasserman from our church. You guys know Ben, right? He he participated in a 5K around Lake Padden uh, with a, sh- a a lift in his shoe because you know Ben has a shorter leg on one side. And next month he's going to have a leg lengthening surgery. That's very uh, intense surgery. And one little boy, a friend of his, had that surgery. And this 5K was in support of that friend. And you know Ben not only finished that race, he ran the whole race on a lift did you and he dug deep and Ben showed real heart that's why I love sport but you know it doesn't just take sport to show heart you can show heart in writing poetry and making a great film in running or managing a business or a store you can have heart in writing music and per- performing music. You can have heart in designing a bridge for you engineers out there or teaching in a classroom. It's about heart. In the Greek, cardia, from where we get our word cardiac, right? We say when someone has heart, we're not just talking about this muscle with two atrium and two ventricles that pumps blood around our body. We're talking about something more. When a person does something with heart, they do it with all of themselves. We get this term from our ancient ancestors who didn't know very much about anatomy and physiology, but they believed that the heart or the core of a person, in fact, in some of their drawings, they don't even have really the location of the heart in the right spot. It's more like in this area. But they believed that all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our actions, all of our character was seated in the heart or the core of a person. This evening, we're going to look at a story about hearts. And in the story, Jesus confronts some people in spiritual cardiac arrest. They've stopped living with their hearts, and they're in danger of being spiritually dead. If you feel that you may be in danger of spiritual heart attack, I've got good news. This passage is like CPR for spiritual cardiac arrest. It's like a defibrillator for spiritual death. So let's let the Spirit minister to us and through us as we receive this word. Would you stand with me please as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. It goes like this. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of a father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not about to honor his father or mother. And by this you've invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles people. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he said, Every plant which my father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, 
Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Lord, we invite you to come and to open our hearts. And where they're hard, I pray you would soften them. Where they're not working, I pray that you would jumpstart them. (laughs) That you would give us a, a spiritual shock today. Lord, we uh, admire people who live with heart, who live with passion. We want to be those types of people as we follow you together. Amen. You may be seated. Elsa, I think you can count the prayer hearts too. That's, that's okay. I, those are unscripted. I realize I'm now going to have to listen to this whole sermon to count the hearts myself. Because, anyway, but it's worth it. It's worth it. All right, so... <laughs> Well, I opened this, this message saying that I love sports because I love to have the opportunity to play with heart and I love to watch other people compete who have heart. And I like to be around people who live passionately, who live with their heart and that's probably why I like hanging out with Jesus so much and reading about Jesus because Jesus, more than anyone I've ever met, more than anyone I've ever read about or experienced, Jesus knows how to live with heart. There's this time that a scribe, that's one of the uh, religious scholars, came to Jesus and said, Jesus, or Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus just said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, Live out there with all of your heart for God and people. That's the passionate kind of life I want to live. Well, our story this evening takes place right after uh, a very amazing couple of stories. Those amazing stories goes like this. Jesus miraculously fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He then comes walking on a stormy sea, allows one of his disciples to join him walking on a stormy sea. Then he calms the sea, and then he heals multitudes of people, sick people, ill people, depressed, beaten down people. Well, what happens at the end of these amazing, mighty deeds is that the Pharisees dispatch some scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem to come out to the countryside to confront Jesus. Now, in our, uh, Pharisees were some, uh, or one of several different sects within Judaism. That's several different groups of Judaism. Uh, they were men who were gaining popularity among the masses for their strict adherence to the Hebrew Scriptures. They believed that if they could just get the nation of Israel on the same page, if they could get everyone doing the right enough things for the long enough period of time, that God would have to take notice and come and intervene and rescue them from Roman oppression. They studied scripture and they created traditions and regulations to make sure that people obeyed the scripture and to make sure that people would not break any of the laws of God. 
Well, they must have heard that Jesus was gaining in popularity, that he wasn't just this obscure teacher anymore. Crowds are beginning to follow him. And we don't really know what their problem is. We don't know if they're maybe jealous to some degree of the popularity that Jesus is getting. Maybe they think that Jesus is leading the people astray. Maybe they have the most noble of intentions. And I think it's really dangerous, actually, for us to just say they must have thought this or must have thought that since the Bible doesn't tell us. But here's what we do know. We know that the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus and that they didn't trust Him. After all His mighty deeds, after all of His healings and exorcisms, after His unrivaled teaching, these religious leaders still set out to try and discredit Him in public. So they challenge Him. Right in front of all the crowds. Why don't your disciples wash, they, wash their hands when they eat bread? In essence, they're saying, Okay, you're the rabbi of these dudes. What kind of loser rabbi are you that your own disciples don't follow the traditions of our elders? You must not be a very good teacher. They're, they're saying this to Jesus in front of all the crowds. In essence, they're saying, this man is not fit to be followed. He doesn't uphold their traditions like we do. He's not as holy as we are. Now, here's the thing. Kids, why do we wash our hands before meals? Anybody? Big kids, too. Why do we, you know? Yeah. Yeah, germs. Yeah, a couple, couple, we've got a doctor over here. He knows all about germs, microbes. Um, we wash our hands before meals because it's gross not to. People in the ancient world didn't know about microscopic bacteria. They didn't wash their hands almost uh, for, to, before they ate their meals. It wasn't to be clean. They washed their hands before meals for ceremonial cleanness. And here's the interesting thing. The Pharisees were teaching that everyone should wash their hands before every meal. But the Bible actually says in the Old Testament that only priests had to wash their hands ceremonially to be pure before they handled sacred food, like doing an offering to God in the temple or in the tabernacle. It was about purity. And purity is about being set apart to properly relate to God as the people of God. So, for example, maybe you've heard about this uh, in the Old Testament, people couldn't eat pork, right? Sophia, I know you love some bacon, girl, just like me. Come on. Uh, and, and that would really be bad to not be able to eat bacon. <laughs> so that's, a, that's a side tangent. But they couldn't eat pork. And why is that? Why would God make a rule about eating pork? Well, one of the interesting things that we've discovered is that pagan tribes, people that didn't worship God, most often sacrificed pigs to their gods. So when we look at these archaeological digs and we see these remains of what types of bones are there, they're primarily pig bones. And so people, what they would do is they would sacrifice certain parts of the pig to their gods, and then they would have a big barbecue together and have loin and pork chops and all kinds of stuff like that, maybe even some bacon, right? So... If God, when He rescued the people, took them out of Egypt, they've been influenced by all this pagan stuff, He brings them out in the wilderness, and He wants to teach them, there's one true God, I love the heck out of you, please, I want to make you pure, I want to make you different than everyone else, because only when you're different than everyone else, can you then have a word to speak to these other people. So He says, no pig, because that's, in their mind, connotes this worship of, of other gods, right? So the law is really about relationship. Relationship with this one true God. 
Well, the Pharisees took the law about priests washing their hands before ceremonial meals and applied it to all people and all meals. So their intent, I think, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, I think they're noble. I think um, it also opened the door to things like self-righteousness. Because if you follow the stricter version of the law, you could then put your nose up at everyone else who doesn't follow the stricter version of the law. And all those people who didn't follow the stricter version of the law might feel less holy, even though that's not even a law of God. Well, Jesus is having none of this. So they confront Him in public. He knew the condition of their hearts. Elsa, mark that one down. He knew they were close to spiritual cardiac arrest. They accused Him of breaking a man-made tradition, but they themselves had been breaking a law of God. The fifth commandment. And kids, this is an important one, so listen up to this. Honor your father and mother, that in your days you may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Actually, anyone with parents need to be paying attention to that one. In the ancient world, part of honoring your father and mother is taking care of them in their old age. Things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, retirement plans did not exist. And in fact, most places in the world today, they don't exist. But part of the duty of a son or a daughter was to care for your family. Well, some adult children in this time didn't want to care for their parents. So the Pharisees allowed this man-made tradition called Corban. And Corban literally means dedicated. By dedicating your estate to Corban, you were saying that it all belongs to God. You were allowed to live, make a living for you and your immediate family off of your estate. Like let's say uh, you own a vineyard or something like that or a fishing business. So you could feed your family and do some things. But you were not a- allowed, if you made that estate dedicated to God or Corbin, you then said to your parents, Sorry, I can't take care of you because this stuff is dedicated to God. Now here's the catch that the Pharisees were allowing. When such and such a person's parents died, the Pharisees were allowing them to renege on their Corban. So basically, these people were not taking care of their parents. They were breaking the fifth commandment. And then when their parents finally passed on, they were taking the money back to be used themselves. The Pharisees were allowing this sort of behavior. So what's Jesus getting at here? First of all, let me say something clearly. Jesus is not anti-tradition. Tradition simply means to pass down. Tradition is one of the primary ways we teach each other. Cultures have traditions. Churches have traditions. And some traditions are very, very good. Uh, The teachings of the Gospels and the Epistles are the Christian tradition. And Paul exhorts the Thessalonian church, for example... Stand firm. Hold on to the traditions you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Some traditions are good. Tradition should uphold the Word of God and not distract from it. Tradition should should serve to build up the church and build up people and not distract them from God. Here's a good quote from historical theologian Yersilov Pelikan. It says... 
Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Okay? Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Jesus is after the heart. He sees through the traditionalism of the Pharisees. He sees into their vacant hearts. And he quotes Isaiah 29 at them. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy. And I imagine when Jesus says this, a stunned silence. You got served. There's Did I say that? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. I imagine stunned silence. And then the scriptures say that Jesus turns to the crowd. He's totally got their attention now. Like, who is this guy that just put them in their place? And he says something radical. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a person, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles them. Stunning words. Because Jesus is not just correcting a way of broken thinking. He is correcting a broken world. Listen to this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created all things. The world, the seas, the stars, the sun, the plants, the animals, you, me. And what did he say about it? He said it's all good. It's all good. Nothing good was withheld from Adam and Eve in the garden. Nothing good except for the forbidden fruit. All things were for them. All foods, all rivers, all mountains. The way they could express their bodies. It was all centered on their relationship with God. It was all fair game. It was all good. But after the rebellion... After the rebellion, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the earth was cursed. Thistles began to spring up. Death entered the world. Life was harder, shorter. Not all things were good anymore. Some foods could kill you. Some things were declared impure. They could defile you before God. Now, are you ready to have your mind blown? Get ready. Mind, prepare to be blown. How does the Gospel of Matthew start? Alright, kids, ready to learn some Greek? Biblos, everyone say Biblos. Geneseos. Biblos. Geneseos. Literally, that means the book of Genesis. Or the book of the generation of Something new. The book of beginnings. Jesus. What Matthew, why Matthew starts his gospel that way. And John does it overtly. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Right. So what Matthew is doing is he's saying Jesus has come not only to save the world. He has come not only to redeem the world. He has come to remake the world. A new beginning. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 2. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. What he's talking about there is God recreating those who put their faith in Him, making us new creations, making a new world. So food no longer defiles us in God's presence. 
Now that's not to say there's some nasty foods out there. I had some nasty food. There's some vegetables I wouldn't touch. Kids, you should all eat your vegetables. But there's some gross food out there. And there's some food out there that will still kill you. You should not eat puffer fish unless it's done just right. And you know, there's some bad things out there in the woods. You shouldn't eat mushrooms, kids, unless you know what you're doing. Anyway, so, um, there's stuff that will kill you. And that, but what's happened is, with Jesus, the kingdom has begun to break in. And those food taboos, those... Uh, we are no longer impure before God by what we eat. It is all good. And you know who our best thinkers about the goodness of creation in Christ are? Uh, our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. If you want to read some good stuff on the goodness of creation because of Jesus, uh, read those brothers and sisters. Okay, uh, so the disciples are worried that Jesus has offended the Pharisees and maybe the crowds. After all, those food laws, I mean, that's not just something the Pharisees made up. Those are in the Bible. God gave us the food laws. And they're also, um, the food laws are also the root of some of the stories of Israel's national heroes. There's this book called Maccabees. It takes place between Malachi and Matthew in the timeline of history. And it was a time when the Alexander, uh, his generals have come, he's dead, and, and they began to take over Palestine. So the Greek way of thinking was, what Whatever city we conquer, we make it another little Greece. Okay, so that's why you have an Alexandria in Egypt of all places. Egypt's in Africa, right? Why is there an Alexandria? Because Alexander the Great conquered it and created uh, a place for himself. So in any place where there was a Greek takeover, you're going to have Greek names. That's called Hellenization. Getting a good lesson. You know what the Greek word for Greek is? Is Helen. So Hellenization is the Greek way of imposing itself all, all, all over the world. And so in any Greek city that was taken over, you're going to have things like arenas and gymnasiums and theaters, all the little Greek stuff. And it was forced that people would have to learn Greek and accept the Greek religion. Well, one of the Greek things was eating pork. And they would force uh, Jewish people sometimes at pain of death to eat pork. And some of these Jewish people revolted. They refused. And they were horribly uh, martyred for their faith, for resisting eating pork. And they became national heroes. And so what Jesus is undoing these food laws, I mean, it's more than just, yay, we can have bacon with eggs or whatever. It's, it's wow, you are undoing some things that are very important to our national history. People have died for these food laws. So this is offensive material. And by the way, this comes from a man, Jesus, who said this, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, he who annuls the least one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called, what, least in the kingdom of heaven. He who keeps and teaches the commandments will be great in the kingdom of heaven. So is Jesus contradicting himself here? Or could it be that Jesus has fulfilled this piece of the law? And now, there's new freedom for us. Do you not know that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and literally is extracted with force into the latrine? Kids, this passage gives you free reign to do potty talk at home. Because it says literally that what goes into the mouth goes into your tummy and then you know how it comes out. It goes with force, ekbalo, into the latrine. It's all, it's all there. I'm just saying what the Bible says. Okay, So, 
It's what comes out of your mouth that matters. Why? Because what comes out of the mouth comes from the cardia. It comes from the heart. It's what comes out of the heart are words, our facial expressions, our attitudes, our actions. Those are the things that defile us before God, that separate us from God. It's not the stuff that we put in our mouth. It's what comes out. It's what can hurt other people. That's why I asked Steve to read Psalm 24. Who may approach God, the mountain of God? Basically, let me sum it up. Those who live in right relationship with each other. So Jesus says it's from the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sex outside of marriage, theft, false witness, slanderous speech. Those are some of the ugly things that come out of our hearts. And just some quick observations about this list for you teachers out there. Uh, First is, this is really fun, Dale Bruner, who is a Matthew scholar, pointed out that these sins are listed in the same order as the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th of the Ten Commandments. So that's kind of fun. Matthew orders Jesus' words like that. Mark is all over the place. Um, Second, notice who it is that commits many of these sins Jesus lists. Who was it that was publicly slandering Jesus in front of people? The Pharisees. Who was it that condemned Jesus to death with false witnesses? The scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Who was it that started uh, a tidal wave that would see Jesus murdered? These religious leaders. It was the same religious leaders who were so good at doing the religious motions that break all of these rules of the heart, all of these sins toward other people. And I think that that's why, to me at least, as I've been processing this, that's why just going through religious motions can be so dangerous. It doesn't require heart. On the one hand, following the rules as a way of feeling right with God can give us a false sense of, hey, we're in. We did all the right stuff, all the right way. God has to be happy with me. We can fool ourselves into thinking that if we do all the right things, we're right with God. But you know what God is pleased with in the Scriptures? Broken, contrite hearts. Not self-righteousness. God is pleased with obedience that stems out of love from the heart. Not empty practices that are trying to, to win His love and approval. And on the other hand, focusing only on behavior can give us a false sense that we are unloved by God when we don't get it right. If we put so much stock in following the rules and doing the right stuff, who follows the rules right all the time? I don't. And so if that's where you're putting your weight, if that's what you're banking on, don't we always feel we come up short and inadequate? You know, as a parent, and if you're not a parent, you've been a kid, so this applies to you too, but as a parent, this kind of concept hits close to home for me. It's this idea of heart versus behavior. See, I think oftentimes, and I do this too, oftentimes we focus on getting our kids to behave a certain way. And what we communicate is that if they act a way that they're supposed to act, if they do the things that they're told, then they are good. And when they do not do what they are told, then they are punished. 
Now, for the most part, the heart of a child wants to please. The heart of the child wants to avoid the consequences of doing the wrong thing. But what happens, and it's happened for all of you who are grown up, what happens when they realize that there's a bigger world out there than just your family unit or just your local church? And what happens when they realize there are other ways to behave? And what happens when your approval is not the most important source of approval anymore? What happens when they decide who they are and what they want to do? Are we creating little people who do the things we want them to do? Or should we be focusing on shaping hearts that want to do the right things in life? See, I think we oftentimes set up an environment of works to gain approval rather than an environment of grace. And the reason I bring that up is because I think that's sometimes how we've shaped discipleship. That's sometimes how the church has taught us to be toward God. You know, God is called Father for a reason. He's loving. He's relational. He's the kind of Father who embraces the prodigal, who prizes the heart behind what we do more than heartless devotion to a set of rules. I, I've said this before. I, maybe it should bother you a little bit. I had to wrestle around with it a little bit too. Christianity is not primarily a moral religion. Christianity is not primarily a moral religion. Christianity is primarily a grace-filled relationship rooted in Jesus. Christianity is primarily about coming to terms with who we really are, receiving grace from a loving Father through Jesus. And when our hearts are filled with that acceptance and love, makes me want to be a different kind of person. Then the behaviors flow out. Then I want to be a better person. It doesn't start with the morals though. It doesn't, God doesn't sit there. He didn't send Jesus to, to give us a good example of how to live and just say, follow me, do all of these things. I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Because if heart is the key to this relationship, I have a real problem. Because there are still some ugly parts in my heart. You know, it's from the heart that flows our thoughts. I don't know about you, have you ever had a shameful thought? Yeah, I'm talking about maybe how many times an hour. And from our heart comes words that we often wish we could retract. And sometimes we wish we really would have had a zinger to hurt somebody worse. And it's from our heart that comes all kinds of actions, either, either the kinds of actions where we've hurt someone or the kind of inaction that we've allowed someone to suffer when we could have helped. My thoughts, my feelings, my actions, and I suspect yours, betray the broken condition of my heart. And what's there to do? You do not know how hard I tried to find another way to sum this up. You know I'm not like the three steps to the end of the sermon kind of guy. But for those of you who like that, 
Here it is. I've got like four or five R's for you. Get ready. Get with your notes. Okay. First of all, recognize. Recognize the condition of your heart. If you've ever practiced things like the prayer of examine at night where you go through your day and just process it with God and say, oh, I'm ashamed of these things. I'm really thankful for these things. I'm confessing to you what's going on. That's part of the recognition of where your heart's really at. So recognize. Second R, repent. When you recognize the reality of your fallen state, let me just put this in I terms. When I recognize the reality of my fallen state, I feel it. And I don't like it. And it makes me want to turn from it. It makes me want to... Express God. I want your loving heart. When I read the stuff about you in the scriptures, I want to be like that. That's called repentance. When we when we've decided, when we turn around, when we say we don't want to do this anymore. So recognize. You better recognize, right? And then repent. And then the third R is receive forgiveness. You know, this is Christianity is not a religion about beating yourself up every night before bed. I recognize I'm a horrible person and I repent. Uh. Recognize, repent, and then receive forgiveness. Hear the good news. Fresh, God, our God is a God of fresh starts. Every day, every morning, every minute if it needs to be. Jesus died for us, took our sin. He offers us liberation from sin and death. And He wants to give us a new heart. I'm not just making that up. That's in the prophet's. Ezekiel, Jeremiah talking about the day of the Spirit that we live in now when God turns hearts of stone and wood into hearts of flesh that feel. Ah. Fourth R. We've got recognition, repentance, reception, and then resolve to follow Jesus. A lot of times... The gospel, at least where I grew up, the gospel is presented like this. You're a sinner. You need God. Jesus died to forgive you. That's awesome. That's not the whole gospel. Alright? We also receive the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus gave us things like the Ten Commandments, not to make us feel bad, but to say, brothers and sisters, this is how you can be with my help. You can live in a world where you're not overly angry at everyone. You can live in a world where you are not controlled by lust. You can live in a world, you can have a life of fidelity. You can be the kind of person really, 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 that your yes is yes and your no is no. So resolve to follow Jesus. Make a decision to trust Him for forgiveness. Decide that you are going to get to know Him through the Scriptures, through prayer, through this, through taking a walk on a snowy day with eyes to adore the Creator. So many ways to connect with Him, but resolve to follow Him. And the fifth R is repeat. Right? I mean, how many... If this was all as easy as it was with the first four R's, I would never preach another sermon. You've heard it all. You wouldn't need this anymore, neither would I. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we're going to need this... We're going to need to repeat this system tonight. I am, probably. Okay? 
So repeat. And this is not mean, this does not mean you are a failure. We already know that. <laughs> that's why God died for us? Because we, we've got some problems. But that's not the end of your story. The end of your story ends with hope. Right? Uh, we are going to transition now uh, to a time of... And Elsa, that's it for the heart. Okay. We're going to transition now to uh, a time of healing prayer. Um,